Hope you guys are doing well. I'm excited to be here with you. Uh, I love worshiping here on Sundays together, and I love it when the weather's nice, and that's finally starting to happen. I was going to be able to get up and say I went on a big bike ride yesterday, but I bailed, so I didn't do that. So we'll just, uh, I have no stories. We'll just jump right in. Um, my name's Steve. If I haven't met you, I really would love to do so, so please come and find me afterwards. I'd love to meet you and hear a little bit more about your story. Um, this morning, we're going to be finishing up a four-week series that we've been doing uh, that we called the Gospel of Ruth, and we've been looking through the book of Ruth in the Old Testament, and as we've kind of been digging below the surface of this book, we've, we've seen that throughout all of the heartache that Naomi and Ruth are experiencing in their daily lives, that Yahweh... The God of Israel has been there all along. He has been the one moving their story along as part of the larger story of his gospel. And the narrator of this story, the author, has has done an amazing job of kind of giving us subtle clues about the presence of this God. And we've been given really an amazing story. It's got tension, romance, conflict, there's death and sadness, and there's joy and restorations. And, and, and I personally lost count of how many times Brian said sex last week. I mean, this story has everything, right? It's got everything we'd ever want in a good story. And all along, what we've been trying to see is that this story really has a series of threads that are being woven together. And so this morning, what we're going to try and do is finish up the story and then look back and try and see the larger tapestry that's being woven we'll see that really this story uh, is more than something for us to distill and try and pull out a moral. We do that a lot in our culture. When we read like Aesop's fables or something, we, we tend in Christian culture especially to even read the Bible through that lens. We want to boil it all down and then figure out what's the one thing that I'm supposed to do from this story? What's the, what's the character that I'm supposed to emulate? Who is it? Who should I be? But really what we're going to see is that part of the reason that Boaz and Ruth are such amazing characters to us, part of the reason we want to emulate them is because they realize that their own story being written and being lived out is about more than them. It's about more than just boiling down to that one moral choice. It's about more than just what's happening in their own personal life. It's bigger than that. And that's actually why we're drawn to them. So let me read our passage and pray for us, and we'll get started. This is the Old Testament reading, Ruth chapter 4. Meanwhile... Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here. And in the presence of the elders of my people, if you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know, for no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, 
and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth, the Moabite, and Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring of the Lord gives you, by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This, then, is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, once again, we are here because we are people that desperately need life. Our days and weeks are spent searching for fulfillment, searching for meaning, searching for value. And as Brian alluded to earlier, we are people who desire to be liked, but really what we need is to be loved. I asked this morning as we wrap up a story that is so foreign to our own culture that we would see your love shining through it. That we would see that despite all of the differences between our lives and the lives of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, that really what we need is a Savior. I ask that you would speak through me this morning and that your spirit would enliven our hearts to your love. We pray this in your name. Amen. So as we look at the final part of the story, and granted it's a pretty big chunk, so we're going to have to move pretty quickly. We're going to do it by looking at some Jeopardy categories, okay? You guys fans of Jeopardy? Anyone? All right, here's the, here's the categories. Category one, ladies or land? Question mark? Ladies or land? Number two, the risks of love. And category number three, Naomi gets served, all right? That's as far as the Jeopardy analogy goes. I don't have any questions, you know, for you to answer. Um, so let's start with ladies or land. In the past few chapters, we've seen what appears to be this kind of budding romance between Ruth and Boaz. And so if you've been with us throughout this series, you'll, you'll know that they kind of meet and, and then things get a little steamier, as Brian mentioned last week. And so we're kind of on the edge of our seats wondering what's going to happen here. And we have to be careful as we kind of finish out the story because Really, in our culture, the way that we tell stories and the way that we understand stories, our minds have really been conditioned to think in terms of emotional fulfillment, 
physical attraction and romantic love. And there's nothing wrong with any of those things. But if we, if we try and force this story to fit that mold, we're going to end up losing a lot of it. And if we misunderstand the resolution of this story, it's because we've actually misunderstood the conflict. We've misunderstood the problem. And so as we've been going through, we've been trying to kind of uncover the larger themes that the narrator is pointing to. And Brian did a, an amazing job last week of kind of uncovering for us that even just at a basic plot level, as these characters are kind of moving through the conflict and tension of their lives, we see that for Ruth and Boaz, they are working for something far greater than just personal fulfillment. This story is not just about two people falling in love. Ruth and Boaz are both working for something much, much larger than that. And so we have to be careful now, as we finish the story, to not turn it into a fairy tale, happily ever after sort of ending. And, and really, that's not just a cultural tension that we have. This is also a Christian tension. So if you've been a part of the church for a while, we're going to have to be very careful as we finish this story to think well, to think clearly about how our eschatology, the things that we think are going to happen at the end of time, the Christian happily ever after, how do we balance that with the here and now? This story is going to force us to reckon with that uh, pretty toughly. So throughout this chapter, there's a lot of stuff taking place, and a lot of it is very, very bizarre to our modern sensibilities. There's guys hanging out at a city gate. People are passing shoes around, and they're talking in very bizarre legal language. And then, you know, it gets even weirder at the end. as like an entire village names this kid. It's very strange. So we're going to have to uncover some things and try and understand uh, what's happening as we close out. So let's, let's do a little backtrack. Last week... I know the reason you guys are here this morning is because last week we were all on the edge of our seat, right? Ruth goes and proposes to Boaz. Things are a little, you know, tense maybe, and he has to tell her, look, I'm actually not the, the kinsman redeemer. I'm not the next guy in line. There's another guy. Don't get me wrong. I would love to do this, but there's another guy involved, and we have to see what he thinks. And so Ruth goes back to Naomi and tells her, and Naomi kind of leaves us with this cliffhanger, and she says, Boaz won't rest until it's done. And so all week, right, we've been wondering. I know you guys, you know, you, you waited to read the story, right, until this morning. We've been wondering what's going to happen. And so we see as this chapter opens that Boaz is doing exactly what Naomi said he would do. He doesn't rest until the matter gets settled. In fact, he heads straight to the city gate. He doesn't waste time going to look for this kinsman redeemer in his field or at his property or at his house. He goes right to the city gate. Now, the city gate in this time was, was kind of the... Um, the water cooler slash courtroom slash boardroom of the community. This is where legal decisions were made, business decisions were made, and all kind of the town gossip and all the news was spread at the city gate. That's why Boaz goes there. And wouldn't you know it, once again, catch the wink of our narrator. As soon as Boaz gets to the city gate, it just so happens, right, coincidence, this nearer kinsman redeemer walks by right then. And so Boaz says, come over here. And, and here, um, the translators of the NIV have, have tried to help us by translating this as, come over here, my friend, and sit down. But really, uh, what the narrator is having Boaz say here is, come on over here, gibberish. It's, it's this term that means absolutely nothing, and really the only way to translate it is, Mr. So-and-so. Come over here, Mr. So-and-so, and sit down. And so what's happened, and, and this is going to be important later, is, is Mr. So-and-so's name has been stricken from this record. He's not a part of the story in name. So Mr. So-and-so comes over and he sits down and 
Boaz brings up the business at hand. And here we have to understand that from the moment that Boaz entered this story until now, and especially now, he has been living out of, of the deep embeddedness of, of the hesed, the loyal love of God that is in his life. He's the antithesis of selfishness. Boaz is, is showing us as a character what it looks like to live in response to the loyal love of God. And it's interesting in this chapter because Boaz is not being selfish and he's not being um, underhanded, but he kind of Tom Sawyer's this guy a little bit. Okay, do you remember Tom Sawyer would, would be there and he'd be doing his chores and he'd be whitewashing the fence and within five minutes he'd have his friends convinced that they wanted to whitewash his fence for him. That it was, the be- it was their idea, and it was the best idea in the world. And, and Boaz is kind of doing this to Mr. So-and-so, but, but really it's, it's not for any selfish reason. He's not um, being underhanded or being selfish. Uh, he is, on one level, presenting the, the facts in a way in order to hopefully get his desired outcome. But really what we're seeing is that at, culturally what's at stake is something much greater than just Ruth and Boaz getting married. It's even something much greater than just land. See, for Boaz, this, this is not about a romantic investment in Ruth, and it's not about a financial investment in land. It's not about ladies or land for Boaz. It's about something much greater. His actions from the beginning to the end of this story are always driven by that hesed, by that loyal love of God. And as we look at the encounter between Boaz and Mr. So-and-so, and we see that the answer that Mr. So-and-so gives uh, to this offer of redemption, we're going to get a glimpse of the risk of love. We're going to see that to love with the kind of loyal love that God has is actually very, very risky. Um, many of you, I'm sure, had some class or series of classes in high school or college that you thought, I am never going to use this knowledge ever. So for me, that was algebra, okay? And guess what? I haven't. I I don't need to know what X equals. I don't care. Uh, For some of you, this might be literature. You're you're probably thinking, yeah, the Beowulf illusion that I have tucked in my back pocket, that's never going to get me the the dream job, right? That's not going to get me the girl. So we all kind of have these these classes that, uh, as we're sitting there, they seem uh, a little too mundane, a little too boring. And I, I have to say, this week has been a very exciting week for me because in seminary I did translation work on this book and we spent a good six hours. I, I can see it clearly. The, on the whiteboard, my professor drew these charts and graphs of uh, Hebraic case law and just uh, unbelievably boring, okay? I, <laughs> I have to tell you. And I'm sitting there thinking, I'm, I'm never going to use this. And we talked about it for like six hours in connection with this conversation between Boaz and Mr. So-and-so. So, I'm excited to distill that information for you this morning, and you're welcome for suffering through that so that I could just give you the highlights. There really is uh, an amazing assumption on the part of the author here uh, of this whole mosaic law that Israel kind of lived under and within, and so we we do have to do some some uncovering of that to kind of get to the the underlying themes. So, here's, here's the situation. Boaz begins this discussion with Mr. So-and-so by offering him a pretty sweet deal. He says, look, our relative Elimelech, his, his widow is back, and she's selling some land, and you're the guy in line 
to redeem this land. You're the guy in line to buy it from the widow Naomi. And, and Mr. So-and-so jumps at this opportunity because it's a win-win for this guy. Mr. So-and-so is, is really um, a man driven kind of by moral duty in a sense. And so he, he sees that if, if I accept this offer, if I redeem this land, then first of all, I get standing in the community. This was at the time of the judges when most people were not living according to the law. They were not following the law that Moses had given them. They were just kind of doing whatever they wanted. And so, so Mr. So-and-so realizes, if I do this, then I'm going to kind of be the, the, the guy, right? I'm going to have the moral high ground, right? And if I do this, I'm going to get a whole new plot of land to add to my resources for a very minimal investment. This is a lot like when Lindsay is doing a chore that I don't want to do, and I have this impeccable timing in my head. I know right when she's about to finish it, and that's when I go in and I say, hey, can I help? Right? And, but then it's over. So I, I win. I look like a good guy. And it didn't cost me anything. I didn't have to fold any of the laundry or whatever it was. That's sort of what this is like. Now, according to the law of Moses, every 50 years there would be in the land of Israel a jubilee. And so what's happening in this conversation between uh, Boaz and Mr. So-and-so is that if, if you were poor, if, if, if your family hit hard times or, or, you know, the man of the house died and there was just a widow there who couldn't take care of the land, then there was provision in the law for another family from your clan to buy your land. And then in the year of Jubilee, it would be given back to you. So whatever they bought it for was a loss, and they had to just give the land back, and now it goes back to your family. And the idea here is, is that heirs and land are both very, very, very important in this culture. And so if you don't have heirs and you don't have land, then you're basically looking at extinction as a family. Here's the catch. There has to be an heir for the ownership to revert back to. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a male heir. There, is, there was provision, even in a very male-dominated society, for daughters to inherit the land of their fathers. But there has to be at least someone from that family for the land to revert back to in the year of Jubilee. So Mr. So-and-so sees this plot of land for sale, and he thinks to himself, aha, Naomi is a widowed old woman. She's not going to have any more kids. There is no heir to take over this land, which means I'm going to get it for a song, and I'm going to be able to keep it forever. Not only is it going to bolster my wealth now, it's actually going to bolster the wealth of my family. So my kids are going to have more inheritance, and my family is going to become more powerful and more wealthy. So he says, I'll take it. And this is where I have to imagine Boaz has a bit of a smirk on his face, and he says, great. Oh, uh, did I mention that if you take the land, then you get Ruth? You know Ruth, right? The, the Moabite, the foreigner that we're all supposed to hate, the widow. And you know why you're supposed to get Ruth as well, because you have to keep the name of the dead with his land. And Mr. So-and-so, it, it, the dream has, has faded, Right? It, was too, it seemed too good to be true because it was too good to be true. Mr. Boat so-and-so withdraws and says, I can't do it. It'll endanger my estate, so you should do it. So what's happening here? It, it seems on the surface that Mr. So-and-so is probably just a racist, okay? He hears that Ruth is still around and she's a Moabitess, and he wants nothing to do with her. And that, honestly, is, is probably true. It very well could be true. But there's actually something deeper going on here that, again, this understanding of the law and the land and, and jubilee and all of that would help us understand. It's that if this guy marries Ruth, 
and for some reason they have a child, which he's supposed to, to try and give her a child. This is the law. You marry your relative's widow so that they can have children and have their family line continue. And if that happens, then not only does he lose the land that he has to buy from Naomi, but he's actually going to endanger the inheritance of his own children, like his other children. Because now his, the, the heir that he would have with Ruth gets all of Elimelech's land and part of so-and-so's land. So it's further subdividing everything out. And so he says, it's too risky. I can't do it. This is where we see that Mr. So-and-so's life is about duty. You do what you have to in order to fulfill your duties, but that's it. And the second that doing your duty becomes costly, you find a loophole. You find a way out. And guess who that reminds me of? George Costanza, of course. Throughout the entire Seinfeld series, George Costanza rarely, rarely changed. He was always cheap, and he was always looking for a way out. Whatever was the most painless, that's what he wanted to do. And the thing about that way of thinking, that that sort of self-justification that makes him so neurotic and hilarious to us, is that it actually causes him to do his duty some of the time. If he can avoid, you know, making society look down on him, he will. If he can avoid a painful conversation, he will. And and so every once in a while, he'll actually follow through on what he says he was going to do. And this is probably the most clear towards the end of the show when George gets engaged to Susan. Do you guys remember this? Okay, so here's George, the quintessential bachelor. I mean, this guy is never going to be able to make a marriage happen, okay? It just, it won't happen. For whatever reason, he gets really excited and he goes and he asks Susan to marry him. And from that moment on, he realizes this is a mistake of epic proportions. And he's just sweating it out and he can't figure out a way out of it. And so he finally tells Jerry, his friend, listen, I, can't, I cannot face her in that conversation and break up with her, so I'm just going to be miserable for the rest of my life. I would rather be miserable for the rest of my life than have one painful conversation. But then he factors in the cost. As they're paying for all of these wedding things, he's starting to realize this is pretty expensive, and George is very cheap. So they go to the, um, the wedding invitation store, and, and they're looking at the invitations, and the woman says, okay, so this, is, you know, this binder is organized by price from highest to lowest, and so you know, pick out something nice. And so George just immediately throws the book over right to the cheapest part and says, we'll take these. And Susan, not wanting to fight about it, lets him have it and says, you know, okay, but you can't skimp on the rings and don't be cheap on the other stuff. And fans of the show, of course, you'll remember that this is Susan's demise, right? She, she licks the envelopes, and they're so cheap. They have such cheap, toxic glue that she actually dies from being poisoned. And George gets out of the marriage. (laughs) Such a great show. (laughs) Much like George, Mr. So-and-so lives his life out of sour duty. He was defined by the letter of the law not the spirit of the law. And so Mr. So-and-so finds a loophole and removes himself from the risks involved in redeeming Naomi and Ruth. And he leaves, he leaves these two women to their own devices. All because of a loophole in the law. 
Boaz, on the other hand, has been so deeply impacted by the hesed, by the loyal love of Yahweh that he continues to plunge ahead. And we have to understand that the risk that Boaz is willing to take, this isn't one of those stories that's so common in our culture of kind of the rich older man who entangles up his family's inheritance with the new mistress. That's not what's happening. Boaz is not infatuated with a young foreign woman. He is infected with the loyal love of God, and he refuses to let the family line of Elimelech die out. This isn't just about land, and it's not just about romance. It's not just about Ruth and Boaz, and that is what Boaz realizes. This is about carrying on the family legacy of Elimelech. This is about carrying on the people, the line of people that God had called for himself into the land that he had called them. It's about providing for Naomi and Ruth, but it's not just for, about providing for their physical needs. Boaz could have done that with pretty limited cost to himself. Okay? He, he could have given them food every week and they would have survived. This is about providing them with an heir. And so really what we see happening is Mr. So-and-so is asking one of, one of Luther's famous questions. Did the law ever love me? The answer, of course, is no. The law never loved you. It hasn't done anything for you. And so Mr. So-and-so then says, I have no need to show love to Ruth and Naomi because the law has never loved me. Boaz asks the question, how has Yahweh loved me? How has Yahweh loved me? And then he acts with the same sort of selfless riskiness that God acted on his behalf to show these two widows love, to show love to the dead, to show love to the line of Elimelech. This is what Boaz does. And, and it's, the, the writing of this story is so incredible. I mean, do you see the parallels? Here's Mr. So-and-so who does exactly what's expected. As soon as things become risky, he backs out. What other character did that at the beginning? It was Orpah, right? She backs out, and we never hear from her again. And ironically, the one character in this story that was so consumed with protecting his lineage, the one character in this story that was so consumed with making sure that his name was maintained has had his name removed from the story. Mr. So-and-so, we have no idea who he is. So much for self-preservation. On the other hand, Boaz is risking ruin because of said, much like Ruth. When Ruth left everything behind, to follow Naomi out of loyal love for God and Naomi. Boaz and Ruth are equally matched. They're perfect for each other. Loyal love is risky and it's costly. And Boaz moves ahead in this risky, loyal love and he legally declares that he will marry Ruth, that he will redeem the property of Naomi and that he will maintain the name of the dead. That's the risk of love. Now we're going to see Naomi gets served, finally. We reach the, the true denouement of this story. And I, I wish that we had uh, more time so that we could see how richly this narrator has woven together these final strands. But um, we'll just quickly look at a few things here that kind of tie this story to the larger scriptural narrative. And so first, as Boaz makes this declaration, it's, it's responded to by the elders of Bethlehem. And they pronounce a blessing upon him and this marriage and his new family. And they, they ask that the Lord would bless this family and that Ruth would be like Leah and Rachel, the mothers of the nation of Israel. And so we're seeing already that Ruth's decision to follow 
Naomi and to follow the God of Israel is being rewarded. It's being rewarded. She's being compared to the mothers of this nation. And then they ask another blessing on Boaz's family, that his family will be like his ancestor's family, Perez. Now, last week, you may remember that uh, Brian gave us a little background on uh, the nation of Moab and how that entire nation of people descended from an incestuous relationship, right? Well, this little nod to Perez is going to force us to go back and, and hear the story of where does Boaz come from? And it's really interesting how these, the story of Perez and the story of Boaz and Ruth are almost like mirrors, but with two totally different outcomes, two totally different sets of people. So with the story of Perez, Perez was born to Tamar. Now, Judah, who was the, the clan leader of Judah, one of the original fathers, right? It was way back in the day before uh, slavery in Egypt and all of that. Judah had three sons, and his oldest son marries a woman named Tamar. And his oldest son dies and leaves Tamar a widow with no heir, kind of like we see happen with Ruth and Naomi. And so, according to the law, uh, which, you know, wasn't the law quite yet, but, but the family of Abraham understood that there were certain parameters that the Lord wanted them to work within. And so, according to those parameters, Judah is to give his second son to Tamar, or rather give Tamar to him, and, and he is supposed to carry on the family line of his older brother. But he refuses to do so. He marries her, but he refuses to sleep with her. And so uh, God basically kills him. And so now Judah has this third son who's a little young. It'll be kind of robbing the cradle for Tamar to marry him. Plus he's sort of freaked out, right? He's, he's like, okay, two of my sons have now been killed by being married to this woman. I can't afford to risk the last one. Then I'll be without an heir. And so he basically does nothing to help Tamar. Uh, in the midst of her widow, widowhood, in the midst of her poverty, in the midst of her inability to, to rectify her situation, he refuses to do anything for her. And so Tamar concocts a plan, uh, much like the plan that led to the nation of Moab. And, and she poses as a prostitute and actually gets her own father-in-law to sleep with her and then bears his children. They're twins. And the firstborn of those twins is Perez. Boaz is descended from a very, very similar family. It's, I mean, it's a little bit less distasteful, but it's still pretty distasteful. And it's so amazing to see how these, these lines, these family lines, draw us back to this wider scriptural narrative, and we see these two characters acting so differently than their forebears. They are acting out of faithfulness and loyal love to God and his people. But we're not out of the woods just yet. Uh, this marriage to Ruth doesn't solve all of the problems because remember, this story is not really about just a romance between Ruth and Boaz. It's not really just that Ruth needs a man, though that's part of it. It's that Naomi, Elimelech, Malon, they, they need an heir. There has to be an heir for this family line to continue. So we're told that Boaz marries Ruth, they get busy, and Yahweh gives them conception. He gives them a child, and Ruth gives birth to a son. And now, the chorus of women that we saw in the beginning. Remember at the beginning of the story when Ruth and Naomi come back to Bethlehem, and the women are saying to themselves, is this Naomi? She's changed so much. The hardships of life, the bitterness has changed her personality so completely. Now these same women are, are chanting a new chorus. They're exclaiming about the reversal of fortune that Yahweh has brought about for Naomi. 
At the beginning, Naomi claimed that she had returned to Bethlehem empty. And, and we saw how Ruth is standing right there. And now, finally, finally, Ruth's risky decision to follow Naomi is vindicated as the women tell Naomi that Ruth has proven better to her than seven sons. And I realize that that sounds incredibly misogynistic, but in that culture in which uh, having sons was so valuable, they're saying this one woman, this one foreigner has proven better than a multitude of sons, than a completion of sons, than anything you could have ever asked for. Ruth's loyal love for Naomi is extolled. And Naomi becomes the foster mother of Obed. And his name means he who serves. Naomi finally gets that heir, the one who can serve her, the one who will protect her and provide for her. And it's very interesting, at the very end of this story, we realize that Boaz is no longer referred to as the kinsman redeemer of Naomi. Obed is. Obed becomes the one who redeems Naomi. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David. The story ends in such a very, very strange way. I mean, I I felt, as I was reading these out loud, I felt like I was narrating the Lord of the Rings. There's just all these weird names, and what's happening? Well, the story began with a man named Elimelech. And in Hebrew, Elimelech means, my God is king. And really, this entire story has been daring us to ask this whole time, is that true? Is God actually king? Elimelech, the one whose name means, my God is king, had to leave his hometown. Bethlehem means house of bread. He had to leave because of a famine. There was no bread. Then he dies and his sons die. And Naomi is left wondering, is my God really king? And as we close out this story, and it's so important to remember that this is, again, in the time of the judges, we see, as this gets tied to the greater narrative of Israel's history, that God has worked in this situation, in this tragedy, in this little family, to bring about the end of the time of judges and to set up the kingdom of David, to set up the time of the kings when Israel would have a golden age? And the answer is yes, yes, yes. The Lord is king. The women of Bethlehem declare that Yahweh is the one who has done all of these things for Naomi. And he's doing it not just for Naomi, not just for Ruth, not just for Boaz, but for his entire people, for all of Israel and for all the world. So what are we supposed to take away from this story? And the first thing that I would suggest is that we have to understand that our, our stories, the, the things that we're living through daily, are bigger than us, and they're bigger than us in a very here and now type of way. As we understand the importance of Elimelech's family line uh, continuing and being matched together with his land, and we understand the risks that Boaz and Ruth were willing to take for that to happen, we have to recognize that things that happen here and now are incredibly, incredibly important. God cares deeply for his creation, and it is simply not good enough. If you're a part of the church, it is not good enough to say, I've asked Jesus into my heart, and now I'm just hoping for heaven. That is not good enough. 
Scripture will not allow it. No, the, the people that have been most affected by the hesed, by the loyal love of God, are the people that are most deeply concerned about what happens in this world, in this life, every day. If God wanted to run an evacuation program, he's doing a terrible job. This has never been about evacuating from the troubles and trials of this earth. It is about redeeming them. It is about making them new. And so first of all, this book is very instructive for those of you that have been in the church and have been in leadership in the church, we have to understand the ministry of the church cannot be driven with a wedge in between the here and now and the there and then. They're both very, very important. Secondly, this story really forces us to consider the costliness of hesed. It forces us to consider the costliness of loyal love and grace. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it this way in, in Cost of Discipleship. He says, Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again and again. The gift which must be asked for. The door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace, because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Ruth and Boaz understood that God's hesed, God's loyal love is risky and it's costly and it doesn't just supply the minimum. It supplies an overabundance. And many of us are so used to asking, whether we've grown up in the church or not, we're so used to asking, okay, what do I need to do? We've read this whole story, just tell me what I need to do. And what we have to do is realize that that question is fundamentally the wrong question. The question is not, what do I now need to do? The question is, how have I been loved? When you actually look deeply into the love of Jesus and see what he has done for you, you no longer are concerned with, what do I have to do? What do I have to do to feel better? What do I have to do to lose this guilt? What do I have to do to become a member of the church? You don't care about any of that stuff because you have been so overwhelmed by the love of Christ that your love then bursts forth. Don't ask, what do I need to do? Ask, how have I been loved? And finally, just as we have to realize that, that the story taking place is bigger in the here and now, we also have to realize that the story taking place with all of human history is bigger than the here and now. The more that we dug through this story, the more we realize that it really isn't even about Ruth. It's about Naomi. It's not about romance. It's about hesed. It's about a loyal love. And the story is not squeaky clean. We so often like think about church fathers and church history and biblical history, and we see these characters and we think, oh, if only I could you know, live like them and see all these miracles happening. My life would be so great. No, they were dirty filthy people. And that's what we see in the ancestry of Ruth and Boaz. 
It's a sordid past. But in the end, this story is a story about the triune God. It's about Father, Son, and Spirit working in and among their creation. It's about God being king, but not in the way that we imagine. This story is like a microcosm to show us what happens when a God like Yahweh makes promises to his creation. And it's a story that that doesn't even end with King David. It ends with King Jesus, the King of Kings, the one who came in humility to bleed out his hesed for this world, a world that wanted nothing to do with him. This story is beckoning you and me to Jesus. It's calling us to come to him as our true kinsman redeemer, the true servant, the one who can restore our life and sustain us. Let's pray. Jesus, as we see you working so intimately in the lives of Ruth and Boaz and Naomi, I ask that for those of us that are struggling this morning to see how the things that we're suffering, the things that we're dealing with, could ever be used by you for any good. I ask that you would help us to understand that you are a loving God. You are not one who waits outside of this universe, that you have entered in to give us life, to renew us, to bring about a recreation of all things. And you have called us, you have called your people to take part in that by expressing your loyal love to others. As we come to our table, your table this morning, would you renew us and fill us with that life? And would we leave here as a people that have been so filled with your love that we are spilling over in love for others? We pray this in your name. Amen.